Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left and went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread gave thanks and broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, as we are, as we stand, let's pray together. We've been singing of the remarkable love of uh, yourself, our Heavenly Father, through the Lord Jesus. We Pray now that we would be captured again by that love and respond as we should in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do sit. Well, let me encourage you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, page 1020. And uh, as uh, Peter said before the reading, this is part of our series looking through chapters 13 and 14 and a little series that we end today looking at this section. A nicer, a nicer man you, you couldn't hope to meet. He was kind, thoughtful, generous, fair, and brilliant. In so many ways, he was brilliant. He was in his early 30s, fit and well, at the top of his game. And with his reputation growing, he was getting quite a following. But not everyone liked him. In fact, there were some who, who hated him. And to cut a long story short, he was brutally murdered. When you hear of a story like that, do you think, what a tragic loss? Another young life taken early? 
Well, let me tell you, it's, it's a well-known story, but not from the front pages of our national newspapers. It's from the book you have opened in front of you. It is the story of Jesus. And so this morning, I want to ask if you ever think of Jesus' death as a waste, as a tragic loss of life, a young man cut down early. You ever wonder what he might have achieved had he lived longer? Look, just in his short public ministry, he did so much good. How much more could he have achieved if he'd have lived to a ripe old age? Let's face it, if he were still around today, every university theological department would want him in their faculty. He had such a brilliant mind. Every entertainment company would want him on their books. He performed miracles that were out of this world. And every NHS trust would want him on their staff. He could heal people with just a word. He really would have solved the solution of the problem of lengthening waiting lists and rising overheads. When you think what he could have done, had he lived longer, do you look at Jesus' death and think, what a waste. If only he'd lived into old age, how much more he could have achieved Does it go through your mind that his death was just a tragic loss of life? Well, this morning, as we look at Mark chapter 14, we'll see why Jesus' death was not a waste, not a tragedy, but actually the most wonderful thing that could ever happen. It was Passover. You'll see that in verse 12. Uh, It's the biggest bank holiday weekend of the year. Jerusalem was rammed, bursting with life and with great excitement as well. There'd have been a real buzz in the air and around the place. And for some, that kind of last-minute mad panic to get everything prepared before the big day, a bit like the way we charge around in the middle of December, buying last-minute groceries, wrapping presents, getting the turkey. Except for the Jews, it wouldn't have been turkey but lamb. Or for the local farmers, it was the busiest time of the year. Prophets soared at Passover Indeed, you might struggle to get a lamb if you hadn't ordered yours in advance. Now, if you think that getting the bird for Christmas is important, let me tell you it's nowhere near as important as lamb at Passover. You see, roast lamb was Passover. It wasn't just one important aspect of the celebration, a bit like the Christmas meal is important. It wasn't just one aspect. It was the celebration, the very heart of the festival. You simply couldn't celebrate Passover without a lamb. Now, for the Jews, the annual Passover was a a celebration of the moment when God himself delivered his people out of slavery to the Egyptians and into the promised land. And they celebrated it with a delicious meal of roast lamb. In every household throughout the land, the whole family would sit down to eat together. Dad would sit at the head of the table. And as the different courses were brought out to the table, he would use the, the food to tell the story. He would pick up a bowl of bitter herbs and say, these herbs commemorate the bitter slavery that was endured by our forefathers, the Israelites. He'd then take some unleavened bread in his hands and break it and say, this bread is the bread that our forefathers ate when they left Egypt. He'd raise a glass of wine with, with this wine, we celebrate our freedom, he would say. Uh, right through the, the meal, it would take quite a long time, he would tell the story. And the centrepiece of the meal was the lamb. As they tucked into the roast, they would remember how a perfect, unblemished lamb was slaughtered and its blood painted on the doorpost of the house. And then they would remember how back then they waited. They waited as the angel of death passed through Egypt, slaughtering every firstborn in every household. Except any household with the blood of a lamb on the doorframe. For every household that had followed God's command to 
sacrifice a lamb and paint the blood on the doorframe, everyone that did that, they were spared the agony of the death of their firstborn. The angel of death would pass over, hence the word, the, the name, the Passover. The angel of death would pass over every household which had the blood of a lamb painted on the doorframe and there would be no death in that household. So the lamb was the centre of the Passover meal because it was the death and the blood of the lamb, of the sacrificial lamb that saved the Israelites from the angel of death. That's the setting here in verse 12. In homes throughout Israel, the meal, that meal was being enjoyed and the Passover celebrated. And so as Jesus' disciples, they went up to Jesus and said, verse 12, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And as Jesus answered them, we see our first point, if you're taking points, uh, Jesus in control of his death. Verses 13 to 16. Verse 13, they had asked the question in verse 12, where should we prepare? Verse 13, so he sent the two of his his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a water jar will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus told them. So they prepared the Passover. It's that last phrase, almost that last phrase. They found things just as Jesus told them. It's a key phrase that tells us that Jesus was in control of everything. Very early in Mark's gospel, as early as chapter 3, we encounter people who are hell-bent on killing Jesus with with evil, influential men plotting his demise, it's easy to assume that in some measure, Jesus' death was kind of out of his hands. But no, here Jesus is very clearly in control. Even before this, in chapters 8, 9 and 10, he predicts that he will die, and he will die at the hands of the chief priests. And now here, as the time of Jesus' death approaches, look how detailed these instructions are in verses 13 to 15. Jesus said to his disciples, go into a bustling city. Remember, it was, it was Passover, that the city was throbbing with life. He said, go into the city and you'll find a man carrying water. He'll meet you there and will take you to a house. And when you get to the house, this is what you're to say to the owner of the house and everything will be ready for you. It's all very specific. And the disciples found everything just as Jesus told them. It's remarkable. And it should ring bells for us. Because back in chapter 11, in verses 2 to 5, do you remember as Jesus entered Jerusalem, he gave the disciples very specific instructions about finding an unwritten colt. He said, you'll find the colt tied up. Go and untie the colt, and this is what people will say to you. And it happened just as Jesus told them. We see the same at the end of Mark's gospel in chapter 16. After Jesus' resurrection, an angel told the women at the tomb to pass on a message to the disciples and the angel said, go into Galilee. There you will see Jesus just as he told you. The point is this, everything surrounding Jesus' death happens just as Jesus said it would, down to the most intricate detail. The point is clear. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. As he heads for his death, Jesus is in complete control of his death. 
This is no tragic accident. And Jesus is not just in control of his own actions, but of the actions of everyone else around him. That really is quite astonishing. Now, years back, I tried to organise a surprise party for my brother on his 40th birthday. I, I tried to leave no detail uh, to chance. I told all the, all the guests uh, where to be and at what time. I told them to say nothing to my brother. But unforeseen things happened, things I couldn't anticipate, like people being caught in traffic on their way to the venue, turning up later than we planned, and my brother bumping into them into the car park, wondering why people he hadn't seen for years were miles and miles from their home and just happened to be in the same car park as him. Even when we plan things, there's so much that we can't control. But as we read through these verses, we see that Jesus has everything under, under control, even the actions of other people, and what they'll say, and then how they'll react. Now, Jesus' death wasn't a tragic and unfortunate end to a life with so much potential. It was completely planned. Jesus in control of the details of his death. Secondly, Jesus in control of who would betray him to death. Verses 17 to 21. See, with all the plans in place, the evening came and they all turned up for the Passover meal. And as they sat down to eat, this was a celebration, remember. As they sat down to eat, Jesus said, verse 18, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. One of you's eating with me. That's a sure way to ruin a perfectly good dinner party. Well, I went to a lovely dinner party last night. Just imagine us all sitting down and somebody saying, now I've gathered you around to tell you one of you's a real betrayer. That would have been a real end to the evening. The disciples can't believe it, verse 19. They were saddened and one by one they said to him, surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. Verse 20 is chilling. The person who would betray Jesus is the one who was eating with him. One who was numbered among the twelve. We know the story, we know it's uh, Judas. So see how Judas is repeatedly described in these chapters as one of the twelve. It's, it's there in verse 10. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. We've just seen it in our verse, in verse 20. We see it again, again in verse 43. Judas, one of the twelve. Why is it repeated? The warning is clear. Even those of us who identify themselves as one of Jesus' followers are in danger of betraying Jesus. None of the disciples could believe it, verse 19. Surely not I, they all said. I guess we'd say the same. The vast majority of us here, if not all of us here, are committed to following Jesus Christ. We've come here willingly this morning. We saw it was snowing. We thought we'll go to church. We're happily identifying ourselves as one who follows Jesus. And so the suggestion that we might betray Jesus leads us holding up our hands and saying, with the disciples, surely not I. But this is here to warn us of the decision, of the danger that it could be us. And it really could be us. Have you noticed how we never seem to identify with the villain in the story? Is that you? You like me? When I watch the films, any films, I'm always imagining myself as the hero. I love the Bourne films, you know, the Bourne identity, that, that, those, that trilogy of films. As I watch those films, I always imagine myself as Jason Bourne. It's ridiculous. Jason Bourne is super fit, good-looking, with a perfectly toned body, able to get out of any situation, and a hit with the girls. Why do I identify with Jason Bourne? 
In the morning when I get up, my back aches and I can barely walk down the stairs. I, str- I struggle to stagger around a five-mile run. I'm frightened of the dark and with a skinny little body and a rather pointy nose, I've never been a, a hit with the girls at all. In any story, we always think we're like the hero and so we don't think we're anything like Judas Iscariot, do we? Surely we wouldn't betray Jesus. But look, this whole chapter is set up brilliantly to warn us that we could go the same way as Judas. As uh, Peter mentioned earlier, uh, chapter 14 is a chapter of two dinner parties. When you look at chapter 14, verse 1, and chapter 14, verse 12, you see that both dinner parties are happening during Passover weekend. Apart from Jesus, who clearly is the central point of the chapter, there are two other people who feature, one at each dinner party. There's the woman we met last week, chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. And there's Judas this week. And how are they linked? The woman gave an extravagant amount of money in gratitude for Jesus' death. Judas gained a tidy sum to betray Jesus to death. These two passages are skillfully sitting together to tell us there are only two ways we can respond to Jesus' death. And only two ways. If, like the woman, we understand that Jesus' death is necessary for us to be put right with God, then we will respond in thankful gratitude to Jesus' death, ready to give our whole lives for him, whatever it costs. If not, then we will be like Judas. If we don't understand why he had to die, one way or another, we will betray him. Jesus, in control, in control of his death, Jesus in control of the one who would betray him to death, and thirdly, Jesus controls the interpretation of his death. You see, in light of what I've just said, we really do need to understand what his death's about. And we get what his death's about from his own lips in verses 22 to 26. See, verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Now, most of us here will have heard those words many times before. Please, just because they're very familiar, don't lose how powerful they are. Remember the context, it was the Passover meal The normal thing for hundreds of years in Judaism was for the dad, the daddy of the the family, to sit at the head of the table to pick up various food items and to say what they stand for. These bitter herbs are the bitter slavery that our forefathers suffered in Egypt. This cup celebrates our freedom. Picked up an item, this this is that. It was normal at the Passover meal to pick up something and say, this is, what is extraordinarily odd was Jesus' words as he picked up the bread and said, not this is the bread that reminds us of that, but this is my body. For hundreds of years, the Jews had celebrated the Passover with exactly the same words. And then Jesus changes the words and says, this is my body and this is my blood. Astonishingly, Jesus was saying, the Passover's about me. Who does he think he is? 
He thinks he's the Passover lamb because he is. Jesus is saying, just as that lamb died and the blood was shed to save the people of old from the angel of death, it was always, always pointing to me. My body's going to be broken. My blood is going to be shed that we can be saved from the angel of death. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover meal. That's how we're to understand his death. And that's why the death of a man in his prime, uh, the man who lived this perfect life, was not a tragic accident or a terrible waste of life. His death did something that could not be achieved any other way. It was better that he die for us than live to a ripe old age. Because his death saves us from the angel of death, from the judgment of God, and from eternity in hell. In the past, I've met people who say things like this. I like to think of Jesus like this, Jesus' death like this. Uh, They might say, I like to see Jesus' just death just as an example to live by. I don't like all the other stuff. I like to think that Jesus shows me how I can love others. Well, of course, there's an element of truth in that. But if that's all it is, then we've misunderstood it, and that's not what Jesus says. We have to understand Jesus' death as being the Passover lamb, or we've missed the point. And until we understand that, we won't respond as the woman did last week with extravagant thankfulness. And what's more, if we don't understand these verses properly, we'll get ourselves into a real tangle. (laughs) And people have in the church down through the years got themselves into a real tangle with these words. As Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. Oh my goodness, there have been so many hopeless understandings of that. The Roman Catholic Church has taught, and I want to say, in case you think I'm having a pop at the Roman Catholic Church, many in the Church of England do the same, teaching that at communion, the bread and the wine turn into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Please, that is to completely miss the context and to miss the point. Remember again, at every Passover meal, Dad would pick up the bitter herbs and say, this is the bitter slavery. Those herbs were just herbs. They didn't turn into anything. They didn't change into anything. They were just a symbol of the bitter slavery. That's what Jesus was doing here. Of course, we know how this works in everyday life. I've done this sort of thing around the meal table myself at home. Last summer, Joshua and I played in the men's doubles tennis league. I was very proud of him playing in the, de- in the men's league. We're not that brilliant, but still, he was playing in the men's league. And we managed, managed to win some of our matches, and we came home very excited when we did. And when we all sat down for a meal around the table, we'd tell the rest of the family about the match. And I'd pick up a salt and pepper pot and place them in front of me and say, this is Joshua and this is me. And then I'd get hold of the ketchup bottle and I'd lay it on its side and I'd say, this is the net. And then I'd get two spoons and put them the other side and I'd say, and those were the pair we were playing. And then I'd pick up a satsuma and say, and this is the tennis ball. And I'd perceive to move the, the satsuma back and forward across the ketchup bottle and play out the, mat, the, the, the point that we won. Of course, it was always a point that we won. 
And when I did that, those of us around the table, the family, didn't for one minute think that the ketchup bottle had turned into a tennis net and in some mysterious way the satsuma was actually, really, if you look closely, a tennis ball, or that I was now a pepper pot. It would be ridiculous. Neither then should we for one minute think that as Jesus lifted up the bread, did he mean that it was literally his body? Ridiculous. It represented his body. Down through church history, there's been so much confusion, but understand it in its context as the Passover meal. Then we understand what it really means and how brilliant it is. Jesus was saying this is the, that he is the sacrificial lamb of the Passover. And that's why his death is so important. And if we would trust in his death, we have a wonderful future. Not saved, not only saved from death and judgment, but look what he says in verse 25. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Jesus points to the future, to the future kingdom. And do you see how the future kingdom begins? It begins with a future banquet. There'll be a final dinner party, a heavenly banquet at the beginning of the new creation. Eternity will begin with a banquet for all God's people. And Jesus' death and resurrection secures entrance to that dinner party. That's why Jesus' death was not a tragic waste of life. And rather it is the way to life, to eternal life, and to the beginning of a glorious resurrection beyond the grave for all who truly turn to him. He couldn't have achieved that without his death. And we can't be part of that without trusting in his death. Well, we're going to pray, and then after that, the music group are going to sing uh, a song for us and then uh, help us to join in with that song. But firstly, let's pray and then I'll hand over to Matt and the group. Heavenly Fathers, we come to these familiar words of Jesus saying, this is my body and this is my blood. We ask you to save us from the many confusions that seem to have surrounded these words. We ask you more than that to help us to see how it is a wonderful fulfillment of the Passover, of the Lord Jesus being that great sacrificial lamb whose body broken and blood shed brings protection from the angel of death and leads us to a wonderful future with you for eternity. Please, uh, just like the woman last week, may we be people who are full of thankfulness for that death and so rescue us from being like Judas. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.